Thank you for clicking on that button. Hope you're having a wonderful whatever time of day it is for you. Welcome back to My Second Self and I, the only podcast I'm aware of where the co-host and the host are the same person. I'm Matt, the main host. The voice in my head I call the co-host is called Alex. He might echo in from time to time to keep things moving along. Hey guys, that's me. I'm Alex. This is going to be the last volume of the all-female killer theme I had going for July. We'll close out with a woman who went so far off the path from what police are used to seeing that she wound up with close to 50 to 60 victims before she was captured. Allegedly that many. She was tied to at least 11 crime scenes, but as we'll get into later, it's very possible that there are more bodies. Next month is going to be a bunch of old-timey, quote, historical murders. Pre-1900s or early, early 1900s, depending on what the story is like. You know me. I can be kind of flexible with what I talk about on my show. Speaking of what I talk about on my show, you can also expect some jokes every now and then because this is a comedy show. If you're new here, let me break down what to expect. I'm going to write jokes. I do lots of voices. My energy is sporadic at best. I'm kind of loud, but I reorganized my setup the other day, so there shouldn't be any issues with clipping anymore. I was literally in a closet this entire time because I didn't want to echo off the other walls, but turns out none of that shit matters with an audio interface. Who knew? Probably people who do this with an audio interface knew that. If jokes being near murder is weird to you, relax. It's not what you think. The murderee isn't the target. Rather, the murderer and pretty much everything else going on. Much of the stuff surrounding a murder investigation is objectively pretty funny. And that's the stuff I'm looking for. Quotes, headlines, weird behaviors. Every now and then I'll throw in a review or two from somewhere nearby where we're going. I make up most of my own ads, actually all of my own ads. I don't get paid for this yet. And I do that to break up the story and just to add a little bit more depth, something else. Some, and they're really fun to do for me. I also wrote most of the music you'll hear on this show as well, except for the intro bit because I'm not good at piano yet. Last week's episode on Joanna Dennehy is a really good example of what happens when I don't have as much time as I would like to proofread and edit stuff. Probably could have done a little better on the pacing for that one, clean up story structure a little bit. It felt kind of sloppy, but, you know, maybe that's something only I notice, but self-awareness is half the battle a lot of times. However, that did only take me eight hours to put together as opposed to an entire week, so... Maybe just refine my process a little bit better. And then I can do this more frequently. That would be awesome. That's what I want to do. If you listen to that one, thank you. I hope it was coherent enough for you. If not, let me know at FunnyBaldWaiter on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you if you have any notes on um, whatever the hell I'm doing over here. Alex, where are we going today, buddy? We're going to Mexico again. Ah, oh, sweet. Cheap brothels and donkey shows as far as the eye can see. Wouldn't that be exciting? If we were going to talk about any of that stuff today, it might be. But Juana Barraza is our subject today. She is, according to a few articles, Mexico's first female serial killer. However, we just talked about Sarah Aldrete and Adolfo Constanzo a few weeks ago, and they killed like 16 people. So at least for me, I'm more likely to give that title to La Madrina for now. Who knows what else I might find later on down the road. There could be details on many more lying in the depths of the internet. The internet is fucking huge. Most of the internet you see, like public-facing internet, is... I don't remember the actual stats, but like... Maybe 5% is 
public facing that you can just like click on a dot com or whatever. But most of the internet is the dark web, and I'm not going onto the dark web. I don't even know how to do that anymore. I feel like I used to know, but not anymore. But this is not having to do with it. Let's get moving on. So, Juana Juana was a luchadora by day and a violent murderer by night. She is currently serving out an almost 800-year sentence for what she did. Holy shit! Technically, it's like 759 years or something like that, but, I mean, at that point, who's counting? What's another 40 years when you've already been in for 760? So, without further ado, let me put on my metaphorical narrator hat, and we will whoosh on over to story time so we can find out what she did. Alright, I found my hat. But before we talk about what she did, we have to talk about who she is. She was born in 1957, full name Juana Dayanara Barraza Samperio, in a rural area of Hidalgo, Mexico. Unlike last week, we're diving headfirst back into the rough childhood background of our subject. In fact, you couldn't have two more opposite upbringings. Joanna Dennehy was born into a wealthy family that provided her with a rather large absence of obstacles, while Juana was born into extreme poverty with two parents that probably couldn't have given less of a shit about being parents. Her father, Trinidad Barraza, was either a cop or a truck driver, depending on which article you read, and her mother, Justa, made a living as an alcoholic prostitute. Either way, three months or so after she was born, her mother, Justa, decided to bail on Trinidad to pursue a relationship with Refugio Semperio, who is Juana's stepfather. Here's what I think the most likely explanation for that discrepancy could be. This is just me piecing together details from articles that don't elaborate well enough, so this might not be completely accurate. Maybe Trinidad was a corrupt cop who got a hooker pregnant and just didn't want to be in the picture because a cop who had a baby with a prostitute is not a good look for him. And since he wasn't coming back, Husta hooked up with Refugio, who was the truck driver, but he was gone for long stretches of time all the time too, so eventually she got tired of waiting. Whichever one of those men is the father kind of doesn't really matter to the rest of the story, though. Husta sobers up long enough to take Juana away from both Trinidad and Refugio, and they go on about their lives for around 12 or 13 years. During that time, likely due to her mother's occupation, Juana never learned to read or write much beyond her own name, and she makes it all the way to 13 when her mom does something very odd. I guess times must have been hard for Husta when she meets a man named Jose Lugo, Times are so hard, in fact, that she actually sells Juana to this man for three beers. Are you serious? Not years. Beers with a B. It's like that scene in the Blues Brothers. How much for the little girl? We want to buy your women. Three beers for a 13-year-old Mexican girl that can't read or write? It... What? Is that the offer that Jose made, or is that what Husta asked for? What is? I, what the hell is that? I mean, I've been desperate for a drink before back in the day, but I've never been so far gone that I considered selling a child to get a buzz. That is wild shit. And as you might imagine, a man that's willing to purchase a child for such a low, low, rock bottom price is probably not an upstanding individual. And you'd be right to think that. For the next four years after the sale was finalized, Jose abused and raped this poor girl into two different miscarriages and a powerful resentment and hatred for her mother, and people that reminded her of her mother. That would wind up being the motivation for what Juana does later on. Husta eventually dies of cirrhosis and Juana is finally able to escape from Jose and move into a flat in Mexico City to begin her new life with her four children whom she didn't sell for booze. Jose may have been the father of one or two of those kids, but she also had a string of failed relationships after getting away from him, so 
not 100% positive on the paternity of her children, with whom she lived on the outskirts of Mexico City, at least with her two youngest kids, who were 11 and 13. Her middle daughter married early on and then moved out, but remained very close by. She's finally made it to a point in life where she can focus on herself and her family without being assaulted or abused in some way. Almost out of survival mode, she's managed to carve out an existence seemingly out of spite, and when she arrives at the ripe old age of 24, her oldest son, whose name I'm not sure of, it might also be Jose as well, he is attacked on the street one day by muggers, and they beat him so badly with baseball bats that he died. Oh my god, they office-spaced him! Or, another discrepancy in my sources say it was a shootout, but more articles say that it was baseball bats, so we're going with that. Either way, it was not a good day to be a gangster that day. should have used his AK. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Juana made her living as a popcorn vendor working at a wrestling venue. Which is a great way to make a living. Mexico is actually so hot that the kernels will pop just from exposure to the air. They have to store them in coolers filled with dry ice, otherwise they just have pop popcorn kernels all over the ground and everywhere else that it would be unsanitary to try and sell it to anybody. But because they store them the way they do, it's become sort of a delicacy and people are constantly hungry for popcorn, so there's always more room for the next moviegoer or wrestling fan to grab a bucket of extreme butter flavor. And maybe more importantly than the dry ice, this venue takes pride in being completely honest and truthful with its clients. Sort of like how I just wasn't. I mean, she did sell popcorn at a wrestling venue, but the rest of it might not be true. Let's talk briefly for a moment about what this woman looks like. She is a short, stocky lady with short brown hair and arms that are jacked to the moon. She's not only selling you popcorn, but she's going to whoop your ass tonight in the ring when she puts on her lucha mask. And you can reach her at 1-800-COLLECT-AN-ASS-WHOOPING. Check out this totally real commercial from 1999. By day, she's a quiet, reserved popcorn vendor, humbly selling her wares to anyone who asks. But by night, she transforms herself into an unstoppable force of nature. The last person you would ever expect to kick your ass just got off work and she just got new boots. She is... La Dama del Silencio! She's done popping kernels and now she only wants to pop one thing. Your head. Maybe you should have thought of that before you tried to stiff her on the tip. Now you get to be bounced off the ropes and knocked to the floor while she climbs the turnbuckle and leaps into the air with a flying elbow straight into the solar plexus and the crowd goes wild! You don't want to miss it this Monday night. Tickets start at only 450 pesos, and kid tickets are still just 5 pesos. Get here! So that's Juana. That's a totally real commercial I pulled straight from the database of wrestling commercials nestled snugly in the deepest reaches of my brain. But that's novice, honestly, not too far off from what she was actually doing. I don't know if you know a lot about the wrestling circuit, but for as much pageantry as is involved in it, especially Lucha Libre, most people don't start out making a ton of money. She was only getting around 300 to 500 pesos for each show, which is like 20 to 30 bucks here. And that can be really taxing on a person, doing the same thing every single night exactly the same way as the night before for an amount of money that really isn't helpful, probably aside from maybe some food or beer money. But you do it for the love of the game, you do it for the fans, you do it for the children, lo haces por los niños, but you can only work for so little for so long, and in 1995, Juana seems like she's had about enough of this wrestling shit. It's right around this time that Juana and a lady named Araceli Tapia Martinez hatched a plan. Araceli was not a great person to plan with, and the plan itself was just as not great. The plan was to reroute power from the wrestling venue to steal electricity so they wouldn't have to pay for utilities. 20 to 30 pesos a week only gets you like 
a week of electricity down there, and she was tired of getting her ass whooped just to have the lights on. Utilities are an important commodity. You need them to steal from the elderly, which was the actual plan. Sort of similar to how Ted Bundy would operate. These two would dress up in white and pretend to be nurses and then rob them once they get inside the house. I know Ted Bundy didn't dress up like a nurse, but he did offer assistance to people to trick them into letting them do what he did to them, so it's, it's sort of similar there anyway. However, unbeknownst to Juana, I very rarely get to use that word, Araceli was in a relationship with federal officer Moises Flores Dominguez. After a successful burglary one night, the two of them met with Juana and decided, you know what, it's hard work robbing the elderly and getting away with it when one of us is a cop, so you're either going to give us 12,000 pesos or go to jail, how about that? That's like a $700 bribe, which honestly, that might be the better option than going to jail in Mexico. But the seeds have already been sowed. For her entire life, Juana harbored a deep resentment and hatred for old ladies and anyone that reminded her of her mother. Her robbery ruse with Araceli only seemed to strengthen her rage. Instead of having a friend, yet another woman in her life deceived and mistreated her on top of almost getting her arrested for something that was both of their ideas. That can't be an easy thing to process. But like many of the subjects on this show, she finds a way to cope. And also like many subjects on this show, her method of coping is not good for the people around her. In the late 90s, police began noticing an alarming number of elderly murder victims popping up around the city but they refused to comment on whether or not it was linked to serial killings or just a freak coincidence. The newspapers and other members of the press began referring to this potential serial killer as El Mataviajitas, or Little Old Lady Killer. Interesting side note, that word, Mataviajitas, is specifically for male killers. Female killers are so rare in Mexico, apparently, especially against the elderly, that they didn't even have a word for the female version. Second interesting footnote, I live in Texas and it's hot AF right now, and all this talk about abuelas is making me want more Mexican hot chocolate style ice cream. It's at Kroger and it's delicious. Go get some and thank me later. She retired from the wrestling game in 2000 and without that steady source of income, she quickly fell on hard times while her rage slowly intensified over the next two years. Juana took her first victim on November 25th, 2002 a woman named Maria de la Luz Gonzalez Anaya, whom was 64 years old. She posed as either a nurse or a social worker in order to gain access to her apartment. Once inside, Maria said something that Juana didn't like, and it sent her into a fury. She used her intimidating former wrestler stature to beat her and then strangle her to death with her bare hands. That is fucked up. And you know how hard it is to choke someone to death with your bare hands? Like, seriously, I'm asking for a friend. No, but really, that shit takes a long time. I want to say it's like three or five minutes or somewhere in there. That's a long damn time. Let's try something. Hold a coffee cup out in front of you and squeeze it as hard as you can for like four minutes. It's okay. I'll wait. We have time. Now, what if you imagine that coffee cup is fighting back? And what if I really just left a giant four-minute hole of silence right there? That wouldn't be fun for anyone. But this was her first victim, so she needed to take a little time to cool off and process what just happened afterwards. It takes her about four months before she gets the urge to strike again. Near the end of March 2003, she meets a lady on the street named Guillermina Leon, whom was 84. Just like the last time, she dressed up as a nurse or a social worker to gain her trust and befriend her before entering her home. 
This time, however, once she got inside, she's refined her process a little bit. She still strangled her, but this time she used a cord from a telephone or something else that could be used as a ligature. She would adopt this strategy with all of her victims, choosing them from a list of names that were on government assistance. Not sure how she acquired that list. Or if she brought a kill kit with her, I think she used a stethoscope in a few of the murders, but that could have also just been part of the outfit at first. Maybe she didn't think to use the stethoscope until later. But now that she's got a taste for blood and a process to her that seems bulletproof, it's time to get revenge on dear old mom by taking it out on old ladies. By the way, we have had one hell of a roller coaster of episodes this month. So far, we've had a pair of cult leaders, a nurse that targeted babies, a little old lady as the killer, an antisocial psychopath that kills for fun over in England, and now a former lucha wrestler who targets people like the aforementioned little old lady. I have learned so much this month, seriously. All the different rabbit holes I've been down this month between finding stuff about female killers and how they differ from men, my own issues with wrapping my head around a lady murdering someone in brutal ways, which, by the way, while I was doing the Joanna Dennehy case research, one of the videos I watched on it said pretty much exactly what I said in that episode where I mentioned it, so I think I nailed it there, which is the opposite of what the police are doing right now. They are not nailing it. In fact, by November 2003, she's been so busy that the police are having just a massive internal struggle about what to do about it. Basically, it was a big circle jerk of one side blaming the other about whose policies were causing more harm and more crime, sound familiar? That amounted to releasing two sketches of the perp right around Christmas time, one drawn a bit more feminine and the other drawn a bit more masculine. Throughout 2004 and 2005, people had reported seeing a masculine-looking woman hanging around at some of the murder scenes, and given the rarity of a female killer, police were baffled. And this might be my favorite part of the story. At some point in 2005, she briefly had another accomplice. She began a relationship with a man named Jose Francisco Torres Herrera, whose nickname was... El Frijol, or The Bean. <laughs> That is the greatest nickname we've come across on this show ever. Juana has found a new bean, and she's going to flick it all over Mexico City, just in the streets, in nurse outfits, in old ladies' homes. She's flicking the bean all over the place. By which I mean he helped her commit some of the crimes. Right up until September 2005, when they target a pretty important person. They killed 82-year-old Carmen Camila Gonzalez-Miguel, whom was the mother of a very prominent criminologist named Luis Rafael Moreno Gonzalez. The killing of a family member from somebody so closely tied to law enforcement spurred a massive investigation dubbed Operacion Parques y Jardines, Operation Parks and Gardens. They advised the elderly to be wary of suspicious-looking people, handed out some pamphlets, and even paid a few people to pose as bait. Psst! Grandma! I'll give you 50 bucks if you help me catch a murderer. All you gotta do is stand right over there and just wait. Wait, isn't he targeting little old ladies? What if he grabs me? No, no, we'll be waiting right over there in the Elato truck that's definitely not a surveillance van in disguise, so we'll be able to protect you if something happens. Johnson, get her out there. Oh, okay. If you say so. Oh, I hope I make it home in time to watch my shows. Despite the investigation, police are no closer to finding the culprit. The only logical conclusion they could come to, and logical is a stretch here, based on the descriptions, the only conclusion they could come to was that this must be the work of a transvestite. One case in particular, witnesses reported seeing a large woman in a red dress leaving the home of a murdered woman, but still, 
almost no leads were put forward that a woman could be the culprit. In response to the killings, and in part due to their baffling short-sightedness, in 2005 they arrested 49 transvestite sex workers and tried to ID them all with fingerprints. Surprise, surprise, not one of them is a match. So now, having ruled out a transvestite as the culprit, the police are even more baffled. They've never seen anything like this before. A mannish-looking woman is murdering old ladies and it isn't a guy in drag? That's preposterous! That's also definitely not the accent they would have said that in. Then why not throw in a little more baffling information? After they murdered Carmen, they decided to slow down a little bit. This decision, along with committing the crimes at night instead of during the day, caused the police to believe, for whatever reason, that maybe the killer had just committed suicide. I mean, we haven't had a body pop up in a few months now, maybe. Maybe they've become so wrecked with guilt that they just couldn't handle it anymore and took their own life. I've read countless murder stories over at least just the past year, and I, off the top of my head, cannot think of one instance of that thing happening. I've never come across a story where someone's in the middle of a killing spree and just decides, you know what, I'm out, and then just takes themselves out. I don't... I don't know who that is. I'm sure that is a thing somewhere, but I haven't found it yet, so... It's amazing that the police just decided that that's probably what happened. Come on, guys. Until just a couple of months later in January, that little cool-off period is over, as well as the relationship between Wana and the Bean. Aw, can't flick the Bean anymore. Sorry, Wana. Maybe that's what spurred her out of her cooldown. Because on January 25th, 2006, she is seen fleeing the scene of Ana Maria de los Reyes Alfaro by a neighbor who just happened to be coming home when she left. That is, talk about fucking bad timing. She takes off and runs away. The neighbor goes in to find Maria dead, calls the police, and a few blocks later, Juana is picked up by a passing police patrol. She was freely killing people for about four years. I wrote four, like the number four. <laughs> What is wrong with me? She was freely killing people for about four years and was robbing people with Araceli before that. This lady had been a menace on the city for the better part of a decade and she is finally caught. Let's go see what's going on at this lady's house. At the time of her arrest, she had a list of names, a stethoscope, there it is, and a fake social worker ID badge. Uh, how, how did she get all this shit? Does, she can't even read. Really? Like, despite being illiterate, she had tons of newspapers, clippings of the crimes she committed in her room, along with many of the trophies she took, crucifixes, Bibles, just little things, and, oh yeah, an altar dedicated to two figures venerated by Mexican criminals, Jesus Malverde and Santa Muerte. Malverde, the narco saint, has been adopted as the patron saint of the illegal drug trade. He was sort of like a Robin Hood-esque type of character. Kind of looks like... He kind of looks like Ernesto de la Cruz from Coco, which... I kind of want to rewatch, but I don't feel like crying today. Santa Muerte, Our Lady of Holy Death, is associated with healing, protection, financial well-being, and assurance of a path to the afterlife. Mexican culture and history like that's really interesting to me. I've really enjoyed getting to read about stuff like that this month. And I've been trying to improve my Spanish lately too, so I've been reading things in Spanish with a surprising amount of comprehension, so that's also been fun. When she was asked about her crimes, Juana is quoted as saying, quote, I know it's a crime, I did it, and I will pay for it. But just because I'm going to pay for it, that doesn't mean they're going to hang all the other crimes on me. With all due respect to the authorities, there are several of us involved in extortion and killing people, so why don't the police go after them, too? I don't think the police were too eager to believe her. They found her fingerprints at a lot of other crime scenes. 
Then during her trial, Wana has another interesting quote. She says, quote, I only killed one little old lady, not the others. It isn't right to pin the others on me. No, your fingerprints were there. You had the motives, means, and opportunity. No one else matches your description. Pretty sure it was just you. I am curious, though, why the Bean disappeared from this story. Seems like they'd have at least gone after him for some of this. Unless, like, he wore gloves or something. I don't know. In any case, she has tried for 30 murders. It's thought to be somewhere around 50 total murders. Convicted of 16 of them, along with 12 robberies. And for her crimes, she is sentenced to... Hold on, I'm gonna drumroll this again here. She is sentenced to... 759 years in prison. Take that, Lana. The judge comes in off the turnbuckle with a hurricane Rana of justice. Except for in Mexico, the maximum sentence for any crime, even under special circumstances, is far, far short of that, just 60 years. But if she is ever able to get out, it won't be until 2058 when she is 100 years old. For the rest of her life, she will be at the Santa Marta de Actitla prison in Mexico City. And if you go there from Monday to Wednesday, She'll make you some tacos. That's her job at the prison, I guess. This is kind of neat. She was briefly married to another prisoner named Miguel Angel, who was in the men's unit next door. They were wed in a massive group ceremony along with 48 other couples, along well, with all the expected wedding amenities. Music, food, cake, dancing, giant icebergs, fire pits full of suckling pig, tons of expensive rum, tequila, weed, cocaine, strobe lights, everything that makes a party a real rager was left right outside the prison walls. Only those first three things were allowed in. Those two met through a series of love letters they wrote to each other, slowly becoming more and more attached, but they only lasted about an hour after they met. <laughs> she told the deputy, quote, Once we saw each other, the love vanished. And vanishing away from my talking points today is Juana Barraza. That is the end of her story, but it's not quite the end of the episode yet. We still have to do that new segment I'm trying out, which I kind of like it. I kind of just get to talk about stuff that I find interesting or that could be helpful or informative. For this one, I think I want to recap some of the highlights of this past month. Reading about Palo Mayombe and Santeria was really cool in the Narco-Satanist episode. Remember, you gotta put the Nfumbe inside the Nganga to channel the Mpupungu. I also learned during that episode that I'm not the only person that has had trouble with the reality of a female killer. My research has showed me that it's a much more common sentiment than I previously thought. With Janine Jones, we saw an aggressive, manipulative sociopath who literally only cared about receiving attention no matter what form it took. I also learned a few new medical terms I hadn't seen before, like succinylcholine and anectine. Dorothea Puente turned it all upside down by flipping the script on us, the most outwardly innocent looking of all the subjects we've had this month. Still no less dangerous. Grandma's burying tenants in her backyard. What? For how long?! Then Joanna Dennehy was perhaps the scariest, as she seems to be okay with just pure chaotic evil levels of violence, which she would have to be okay with, because if you remember, she stole that man's dog after she stabbed him. Talk about adding insult to injury, Joanna. Thanks a lot. The dog was okay, though. Don't worry. And now this week, a former wrestler takes out her childhood trauma on anyone that even remotely reminds her of her tormentor, aka her mother. Interestingly enough, I didn't notice this and I didn't plan this, but each episode kind of embodies a different motivation of female serial killers, too. La Madrina was violent and used weapons and tools to appease her cult leader husband and her own fascination with the occult. 
Janine Jones was manipulative and used poisons to get attention from sick kids and doctors so she could satisfy her hero complex. Dorothea was also deceitful and manipulative, and she used that to suffocate her victims, but she did it for financial gain and convenience rather than attention or recognition. Wanna... Not wanna. Joanna was motivated by a combination of her libido and her own fucked up sense of morals. She liked to just hurt people for the fun of it or because it made her feel good. And Juana, there she is, was pretty clearly killing all those women for revenge against her mother for selling her to a pimp for three beers. I still can't get over that. That's such ridiculous detail. When she was only 13 years old, too, is the other most ridiculous detail. We have run the entire spectrum of murder archetypes this month, and I, for one, am looking forward to what kinds of things I'll get to learn about next month. As always, I hope you liked that story. If you did, or if maybe you just liked the sound of my voice and my neighbor walking around upstairs, I don't know if you guys can hear that. I'm in a different part of my studio recording space right now, and <sighs> sometimes it'd be like that. But if you like what you listen to regardless, maybe you can do me a favor and leave me a review or a rating somewhere. Drop a comment on the YouTube version of this show, send me a request, at FunnyBaldWaiter on Instagram, tell your friends and coworkers, tell your family, tell anybody that might be interested in a free comedy show that sometimes has insightful information. It's going to be very nearly time for back to school by the time the next episode comes out, so to kick off that part of the year, we're going back in time for some of history's mysteries, and a look at some old-timey murders. I love those. And I'm working on doing some stuff outside of the show that might make it a little difficult, but I'm planning on having another bonus episode in August, and it will be an anthology-type episode, so keep an ear out for that. I kind of just randomly throw out those when I get them done. Otherwise, we'll be back with another episode next Sunday, everybody. Have a good week, make smart choices, and stay kind, everybody! Bye.